culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And yes, most Americans still believe it is God's green earth. No, really. All the polling shows that the great majority of Americans say they believe in a higher power. They believe in God. And yet you've heard all of the reports about the demise of religion, of people turning away from church, turning away from synagogue, uh, basically moving in a direction of uh, radical secularism and uh, of woke non-religion. But is that even true? There's a um, a terrific column that appeared in uh, the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the headline, Religion is Dying. Don't believe it. So what is it based on? It's based on the work of uh, two professors uh, who have joined other academics with uh, citations that are truly blue-chip, gold-plated, very impressive. The two professors who are joining us now are Byron Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson is Distinguished Professor of the Social Sciences and Director of the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University, and Dr. Jeff Levin of Baylor University, who's University Professor of Epidemiology and Population Health and Professor of Medical Humanities and more. Uh, gentlemen, congratulations on the piece in Wall Street Journal and uh, on all your important work. What is it that people get wrong when they say that, uh, particularly among young people, uh, religion is collapsing in this country. Don't the percentage of people who say they are affiliated with anything religious, hasn't that actually gone down? Well, Michael, thank you for having us on your show. We're both big fans of yours, and, and I'll you. jump in, and, and Jeff will jump in too. Sure. And, you know, there's been um, data for for many decades that shows young people actually do attend less often as they enter their teen years. And, you know, so many people, commentators, take that to mean that they have fallen away from the faith. Um, but what typically happens is that they tend to marry and they tend to have children and they tend to come back uh, to those same congregations that they attended less frequently while they were in college, let's say. So it's kind of a cyclical pattern, but people are more interested in the story that, you know, they sleep in instead of going to worship um, during those years. And, and, and so that's, that's one of the, the myths is that uh, young people are leaving the faith altogether. Uh, the data doesn't support that, even though there has been a spike that we acknowledge among young people that attend less frequently during those late teen years and early 20s. And and part of that also, and uh, you have didn't mention this in your column, but I just intuited it from, from reading it carefully and looking at the work you're citing. Part of it also has to do with people uh, generally putting off marriage. Uh, people used to get married, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. When, when I think about it, uh, people, my parents got married when they were 21 and 22, sure. respectively. That's rare today. And so you're, the kids are you're right. putting off re religion and parental responsibility. I think those two things go kind of hand in hand. 
and you're right, much marrying much later, and it does affect all kinds of things, including surveys on religion. I think the one thing that you'll see when, when you look at the article that we wrote, which, by the way, we had a very difficult time getting published. Wow. Uh, the, reviewer, the, the, the reviewers, you know, as we go through a peer review process, and the reviewers almost uniformly didn't like our paper. <laughs> and, and so it was a struggle just to get it published because there is such a, a daunting narrative out there that religion is dying. And so many people have bought that narrative. And for our findings to come back against that and push so hard against that narrative, reviewers just didn't like it in spite of the data that we presented. And so it took us a while to get it published, and that's why we were delighted when, once we finally got it published that we, we could get this piece in the Wall Street Journal because we knew uh, they had a, a significant audience that would be able to see that, guess what, the findings don't really resonate with the narrative that you hear so much. Uh, well, if I if, I if I can weigh in, I mean, I think there's a the, what Byron alluded to is true. When you when you push back against the revealed narrative, the revealed truth, um, it's hard it's hard to get your message out. But when it when it comes to the data that we uh, presented in our article, the issue actually is pretty simple. And it's and in a nutshell, it's this. I started noticing. I don't know. Gosh, 25 years ago, 20 years ago. A proliferation of these news stories about the rise of the nuns, and by that we mean N N O N E S, not not Catholic nuns, people who reported no religion or um, or, or purportedly atheists, and this kind of didn't didn't make sense to me, given given my observations of religion in this country. And when we did a deep dig of the research studies that were done and the research instruments that were done. What seemed to be going on was when sociologists uh, developed surveys to inquire about people's religion, they'll ask certain questions, one of which oftentimes is, what religion do you belong to or what's your denomination? And sometimes these questions are done very well, and sometimes they're done kind of slapdash. And what seems to be happening is that people aren't finding their particular denomination or church or, or religion on a list, and so they're checking none of the above. And what's happened over time is that these none of the above, this number seems to be going up, which simply means that people are, are going to different sorts of churches or different denominations or they're... They're not going to mainline denominations that appear in these lists, and this has been conflated with non-belief. And so as a result, we've seen all these news stories that people uh, aren't religious, that churches are dying, and even now we're seeing you know, these reports as uh, a rise of atheism. And, uh, Michael, there's no evidence that, that there are any proportionally more atheists now than there were 80 years ago. It's well, not, not only that, you have these numbers that I had actually seen before and I've cited on the air before, that among self-described agnostics, people who claim they don't know whether God exists or not, that uh, more than a quarter go to mm. church every month right. or more. <laughs> I mean, they're regular churchgoers, Right. This is what was That's so right. fascinating to us. Of course, the, 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 figuring out that the people that check none of the above aren't really nuns, that was kind of easy. That was low-hanging fruit. But when we dug deeper, people that self-identified as atheists or even or agnostics or didn't believe in God, some proportion of them pray. 
they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they go to church, they believe in heaven and hell, they, even the atheists. So um, it's really, you know, it's really fascinating. And again, this this has been misreported. It's We probably all remember the childhood game of telephone. I've said on numerous occasions, not publicly like this, this is like a game of telephone that's gone completely awry. The data just do not support this narrative that religion is dying or it's the end of religion or that atheists are on the rise. And if that were true, we would report it. So be it. But it's just not true. Okay, this is all fascinating, and we're going to continue the discussion because one of the things you say in your article here is that religion is actually very vital, it's vibrant, it's growing, but it's different. And I want to get into just how it is different and the uh, where where American religious commitment, which is still there, is changing in its nature. We're speaking to two scholars who have written a terrific piece in Wall Street Journal. They've combined with uh, other academics for a generalized study, which is revealing and potent and powerful. Byron Johnson and Jeff Levin of Baylor University in Texas. We'll be right back on the idea that, hey, guess what? God is not dead and uh, neither is the worship of that God. We will be right back. Michael Medved show uh, honored to have Dr. Byron Johnson and uh, Dr. Jeff Levin, both of Baylor University, distinguished academics who have uh, written a potent piece in the Wall Street Journal and a longer article that it is based on. The uh, piece in the journal headlined religion is dying. Don't believe it. Well, somebody who does believe it uh, gentlemen, and I wanted to throw this out to you. It just came up during the break today. Uh, MSNBC has the following headline. It says, Why America Needs a New Kind of Atheism Right Now. And it says, An energetic atheism can tackle the twin crises of creeping theocracy and the death of conventional religion. And... It, which seems a little bit contradictory. I mean, how can you have creeping theocracy, which is a government that is dominated by faith, if uh, conventional religion has died? I'm not sure how those two things go together. But um, what do you say about the, the need for a new kind of energetic atheism to deal with the crisis of creeping theocracy? Is this something we need? Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, Michael, when you mentioned that new headline was the fact that when you use the word hypocrite, and, and I think the first thing that pops into people's minds is this saying, churches are full of hypocrites. I, I just grew up hearing that expression. But when you look at our data, and that's the, the, basically data from five national surveys, what you find is as we mentioned earlier, a significant number of atheists and agnostics actually do pray to God, and they believe, have these religious experiences. So maybe we do need a new kind of atheism that's not 
uh, full of hypocrites because uh, some of these people are obviously quite hypocritical about their atheism. Uh, but uh, anyways, Jeff, you may have a comment. Too. Well, well I, I, Michael, you said that the, the part of the headline said something about the death of conventional religion or something right. like that. Yes, that's, that's the well, second. I, I, I don't see that that's been happening. Um, the main line, the so-called Protestant main line or the, the liberal denominations have really been fading for about 50 or 60 years. Um, what's on the upswing have been the more uh, have been denominations professing more traditional belief, uh, the evangelical world, the Pentecostal world, neo-fundamentalism. And so I don't know that conventional religion has been dying. I'm not even sure what that means. One of the things that we found, we mentioned it in our study, it wasn't part of our analysis, but there are tons, Byron can probably speak to this, new denominations forming, there are mega churches, there, there is a tremendous amount of revival going on, uh, on on the traditional side of the religious spectrum that simply isn't caught in surveys of religion or in censuses of religious bodies. And this is true not just in Christianity, but thinking also uh, about Judaism, um, most surveys tend to show that the Reform movement is the largest movement in Judaism. For a lot of reasons, I think that the Reform Judaism's numbers are hugely overinflated, and that Orthodox Judaism's numbers are under uh, underestimated. For one, Orthodox Jews, on the whole, tend not to answer surveys, and so uh, and also there's the Havara movement, the, the the movement of people getting together outside of normal religious institutions and worshiping, davening together. These things aren't caught in surveys. And so again, I think this is another, that because of this, this, this meme keeps getting reinforced that the religion's dying. Well, maybe the watered down um, religion that people remember from their childhood, maybe that's kind of fading away in some sense, but religion as a whole, especially uh, denominations of believers, strong religious believers, is on the rise in this country. There, there are more practicing Christians in this country now than there have ever been. Wow. And when you say practicing Christians, you mean not just attending church, but a regular Bible study. I, I happen to have a, a, a t producers, both of my producers on this show are very serious Christians, and one of them just took a week off to teach uh, Bible school. Uh, mm -hmm. at that at his church with his son and I mean all, all of this wholesome stuff which again you're right is not caught by media and by churches do you think that uh, by surveys and and reports that uh, come out do you think part of that is because so many of the media who are reporting on faith are themselves secular <clears throat> I, I think well, that's a big part ahead. of it myself. I do. I, and I think that, you know, they look at the data and they see what they want to see in the data. So, for example, to your point, Michael, the Pew uh, religious, uh, Religion Center did a survey a few years ago where they found that 44 percent of Americans had switched religions from the religion of their their youth. And so the headline by the media was 44% of Americans have left the faith. But what, what <laughs> the findings really indicated is that religion is so important, and that, that means that people will shop around to get the best product they can, which means I may, I may have been raised a Presbyterian, but now I'm a Baptist, or I, I used to be Catholic, and now I'm Anglican. 
And so we see that as an indicator of vibrancy. We don't see that as a falling away of the faith. In fact, many of them, they feel like their denominations may have, as Jeff was indicating, um, left some of the central tenets of the faith. And so they have they have moved, and some of them have moved to these non-denominational churches. And so, again, it, you see in the data what you want to see, and I think for many of the media, uh, they want to tell a story that kind of resonates with their own personal experience. And, Jeff, I interrupted you. Jump in. No, no. You know, another point, um, we have a colleague, the, the, the highly esteemed religious historian, Dr. Thomas Kidd, who's now at Midwest Baptist. He used to be with us at ISR. And we, we, our group, the group of us, uh, made a presentation at the National Press Club, I guess, better part of 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago, on a lot of this information. And one of the things that Dr. Kidd presented was he traced this, this kind of talking point, this narrative that religion's dying, it's going away. He traced this to colonial times. And it seems that every few decades, <laughs> it pops up again in the media. And what was fascinating was some of the headlines we've seen over the last 10, 15, 20 years, it was the same wording that appeared in, I don't know if there were newspapers back then, pamphlets or whatever, in the 1700s. Well, it, it, appeared, it appeared, I wrote about this in, in my book, The Ten Big Lies About America. The tenth big lie is that America is in an irreversible moral decline. <laughs> And that lie began in 1640. It was uh, written down in the, the diary of William Bradford at Plymouth Plantation. This is the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims were also worried about the irreversible moral decline, which doesn't seem to be uh, irreversible at all, which is, again, the whole essence of your work in terms of religiosity. We're going to have to continue this conversation and uh, talk to people out there who are listening who want to counteract some of the cliches that are so widely accepted about the death of faith. Uh, meanwhile, could part of that have to do with uh, wishful thinking politically of one kind or another? We will get to that and the connection of politics and faith and more coming up on The Medved Show. One of the great things about actually coming in and doing this show from the station rather than doing it from a closet in my home, uh, which I, I do most of the time, but I'm in the station right now as I'm sitting right across from Jeremy and Greg is in the other room. And by the way, he's there to take your calls if you want to call 1-800-955-1776. But things come up. Uh, during the break, and we talk about it, and sometimes I can share with you. Jeremy just found a um, thing on uh, Nextdoor, and uh, I mean, people are familiar with what Nextdoor is. It's uh, where people share things relative to a given neighborhood, and this is about uh, a, a neighborhood uh, somewhere in the Seattle area. We don't want to be more specific than that, where... Somebody uh, had a, a letter left at his door, and the letter said, Dear blank, I won't say the name, 
first sentence of the letter was, God promises that your peace can become just like a river serene, abundant and ongoing. And that's Isaiah 48, 17, 18. And then it says, you are warmly invited to join us in learning how to enjoy peace now and in the future at the 2022 Pursue Peace Convention of Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, peace involves more than absence of conflict, but also illness, finances, our weaknesses, or damaged relationships. Okay, this seems like you're very warmly invited. Uh, uh, he's, uh, the individual sent the letter back with, uh, with a, um, a sort of fervent comment. He said, do not come near my door. I'm an atheist, and never will I tolerate any religion coming near my door. Five exclamation points. No solicitation, period. Two exclamation points. Whomever is mailing these out, I don't know you. I don't like any kind of proselytizing at my door or in my mailbox. If you're on here of the Jehovah's Witnesses, take me off your list. Um, really? You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I, I know that there are people who respond to any attempt at proselytization very defensively. But I think they're usually people who don't have a religious faith of their own. I, um, I find it, uh, I, I find it always fascinating. And, and one of the things that, uh, um, my very deeply religious dear friend, uh, Mark, who um, is a, 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 makes a practice when uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, LDS uh, young men come knocking at the door, as happens, and generally they're wearing white shirts and skinny ties, and, and they're incredibly sincere and devoted to their wonderful faith. And... Uh, he invites him and he says, look, I, I'm, I'm not a good target for you. I'm religious and I'm Jewish, but come in and have a cookie. And people, particularly on hot days, they enjoy that. I mean, this just came in from Christian in California. He says, could a possible explanation for lower church, synagogue, and mosque attendance be preference to watching services online at home over going in person? That's what my family has been doing lately since the pandemic started. Well, I'm sure that's part of what is going on right now. But uh, the interesting thing is I'm, I'm less conscious of that because one of the things about the Sabbath in the Jewish tradition is you don't use, if you're observant, you don't use uh, online. You don't use electronics. You don't use tapes or uh, basically there is something very special that I think we've all discovered since the pandemic and the lockdowns have stopped. Uh, there's something very special about actually being able to see people in person. And um, that, that was part of what happened with the sentencing of Guy Reffitt that we spoke about yesterday. He was the January 6th rioter who was sentenced to seven years in the Capitol riot case. And uh, his daughter uh, spoke to the court after his sentencing. 
and she was not protesting the sensing, but she was defending her father. Uh, and she talked a little bit about his mental illness. She actually had a great anger toward someone else. I mean, this is a, a, a gentleman now who, uh, because of his participation in, in the riot and traveling across the country to participate in that riot, he's going to be spending seven years behind bars, and he insisted on bringing it to trial. But uh, this is what his daughter had to say. This is clip one. To mark my dad as this horrible person, and then having him prosecuted like this, when somebody is maybe even able to get elected again, um, doesn't seem right to me. Um, Trump deserves life in prison if my father's in prison for this long. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that President Trump is going to respond. And uh, um, again, there was also an interview with the son of the rioter, the son who helped to turn him in uh, because who, and who was threatened with death by his father. It's not a happy family situation. But uh, here's what he said on CNN, the son of Guy Reffitt, who is going to be serving uh, seven years for the January 6th riot case. This is clip 11. I mean, I'm not happy at all and i haven't been happy through this whole situation in my head no one in my family has either but to say i'm surprised would be a lie i mean um everything my dad did he's his own person and uh his action has consequences and but i'm not happy at all do you think he deserves this length of sentence absolutely uh he deserves some time uh rather to uh for anything to rehab Bilitate for his mental health. Um, he deserves uh, a lot of safety nets. Um, but yes, he does. See, the one thing that is most interesting here, and you hear terms like mental health, and you look at a guy like this guy, Refit, and his family, when he got on the plane, or he may have come in a car. I don't know how he came to Washington, D.C., but for people who went to Washington, D.C., who heard the president speak, who then marched up to the Capitol while they were going through the formalized certification of the uh, final votes, of the electoral votes, everything had been decided. There had been 60 court cases which Trump and his attorneys had lost. What did they think would happen when they... Uh, came storming into the Capitol building. In other words, what what was the purpose? What was the best case scenario? What <laughs> it it's it's fascinating because this is the one thing that the January sixth uh, committee hasn't really gotten to. Is yes, you have crackpots like John Eastman who believed that somehow uh, if they persuaded or intimidated Mike Pence into uh, sending the uh, refusing to accept the certified electors from enough states that they could get Biden, by getting Biden to lose 36 electoral votes, they could have done that. But this is one of those things that, particularly on primary day, that we have to focus on because on primary day, there's so much focus on Arizona. Arizona's 11 electoral votes. If uh, 
you need 270 to win. Biden got 306. If he lost Arizona, he would be down to 295, right? And that means he still would have had plenty of electoral votes. It would have taken a three of the smaller states or two of the larger states to get anywhere close. We'll be right back on the MedPet Show. Michael Medved show the um, fears about uh, the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan at least so far unrealized there was um, actually speculation by a number of defense experts that uh, they might uh, at least send up uh, a Chinese aircraft to uh, sort of <laughs> and try to divert her her plane. That didn't happen. Uh, she has landed. Everything has gone okay so far. But uh, meanwhile, in, in the other front on foreign policy, and we'll be speaking to Michael Rubin about uh, both of these issues coming up at the American Enterprise Institute, The um, there is... Uh, still, the, this belief on the part of Marjorie Taylor Greene and her crowd that uh, somehow the uh, killing, the justified death, and by the way, he's been on trial. He's been charged because he was one of the key planners for September 11th. And not only has he not denied it, he's taken pride in that. That's That's always, to me, been one of the most despicable irresponsible, nonsensical elements of the uh, the 9-11 truthers is, in other words, oh, no, it wasn't al-Qaeda. This was actually the U.S. government setting up a, um, a situation to try to make al-Qaeda look like they were responsible. No al-Qaeda people ever took that position. They were proud of it. They honored the people who had died on... Uh, taking those planes into the buildings and taking the plane into the Pentagon. I mean, how asinine is it to believe that uh, uh, people would actually follow this fake or that the people who had lost their loved ones on the airplanes would would go along with the fake? It's almost every bit as stupid as the the idiotic Alex Jones obsession with claiming that uh, these killings at Sandy Hook didn't actually happen, that those weren't dead children, that people had gone through this charade of pretending that their children had been killed. And can you imagine? In, in any event, President Biden spoke out, and it's actually an important reminder and could the president have done it more effectively? Absolutely. But he's right about this. Uh, terror remains a threat. We have been very lucky. We have made progress in the war on terror. Part of that was the Afghanistan situation. 
the killing of Zawahiri was in Afghanistan, even though Zawahiri is Egyptian and was working with uh, the Saudis. If you read his life story, it's horrifying because he had uh, given his life as a physician to nourishing Osama bin Laden based upon the fact that Osama bin Laden would be successful at killing thousands and thousands of Americans, which he was. And this is what uh, the President of the United States had to say about taking out the current head of al-Qaeda. Clip 5. We make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. Okay, strong and appropriate. And he also recalled some of uh, Zawahiri's greatest hits in terms of his record of terrorism. Clip six. For decades, he was the mastermind behind attacks against Americans, including the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000, which killed 17 American sailors and wounded dozens more. He played a key role, a key role in the bombing of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania killing 224 and wounding over 4,500 others. He carved a trail of murder and violence against American citizens, American service members, American diplomats, and American interests. And since the United States delivered justice to bin Laden 11 years, Zahiri has been a leader of al-Qaeda, the leader. From hiding, he coordinated al-Qaeda's branches and all around the world, including setting priorities for providing operational guidance that call for and inspired attacks against U.S. targets. He made videos, including in recent weeks, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Okay. In other words, this hasn't disintegrated the idea of terrorism as a threat to the United States. It's been set back. We have made progress. We are safer than we were. But uh, to say that this threat is gone is like every bit as foolish as people who say, oh, yeah, no, there's no problem with uh, COVID-19 now. And we're no longer in 19. We're in 22. And that's all behind us. No, still a threat. And uh, Brett Baer at Fox News, who is certainly one of my favorite voices on Fox News, actually recognize that uh, this is the kind of thing for which the president can take some credit. Uh, This is clip nine. You're going to hear a moment tonight uh, that will be President Biden's bin Laden moment because he will give a speech, we're told, uh, that deals with the fight against terrorism that has been ongoing, uh, even though we haven't talked about it a lot. Ayman al-Zawahiri, as you see on the screen there, had been a, a, a leader, a spiritual leader, and also someone who is fomenting terrorism in different groups around the world. Uh, this is a huge, huge win for the U.S., and um, we expect to hear that and where the fight goes from here as far as taking out other terrorists. And uh, the the idea that this is part of his religious obligation, again, all the photographs of Zawahiri um, that have appeared that actually show that big lump on his forehead, he's proud of that lump on his forehead from banging his forehead onto the floor as part of his prayer. 
And uh, this is this is not typical. None of it is typical of Islam. It's not mainstream Islam. And uh, again, America has plenty, plenty, plenty of Muslim patriots who serve our country in the armed services and and participate in in every aspect of American life. But uh, and and it's many people who are deeply committed to Islam as a faith who are most resentful and most implicated and uh, and unjustly so by the evils of groups like al-Qaeda and of uh, sick masterminds and a physician at that, uh, like uh, Zawahiri. This is a Biden spokesman, administration spokesman on national security, John Kirby, confirming to CNN uh, about what al-Qaeda is doing right now. Clip 13. Jake Sullivan says we are communicating directly with the Taliban about their obligations not to allow al-Qaeda to use Afghanistan as a basis for plotting. What does that look like? What What is he saying? What is the White House saying? Yeah. And what are the consequences of them not doing that? We have multiple channels to communicate with the Taliban, um, and we're using those channels. Uh, we've made it very clear uh, that this was a violation, not that we believe, not that we think, it was a violation of the Doha Agreement, which specifically says that it commits them to not allowing Afghanistan to be used as a safe haven or a launching pad for attacks against the United States uh, or other of our allies and partners. And clearly, because Mr. Zawahiri was not only there, but was actively encouraging his followers to plot and plan attacks against the American interest and the American homeland, that's a violation. We've made that very clear. Okay, and uh, the idea that uh, the Taliban may be violating the uh, Doha Agreement, is that uh, going to be of deep concern to them in the midst of an American election? Probably not. What does this mean? Is there anything at all to the idea that the entire thing may have been deliberately timed by the United States simply as a election prop to help uh, shaky Democrats. Uh, We will talk about that and much more. Uh, Michael Rubin over at American Enterprise Institute has an important piece, which is headlined, Zawahiri is gone. Here's what Biden must explain. Uh, That'll be explained to us by Michael Rubin. We will also be speaking to Jonathan Allen, senior political correspondent for NBC who uh, will help us take a quick tour of the election results tonight, what we should anticipate, uh, what it will mean, and where the two parties are going with a classic confrontation awaiting uh, in November of this greatest nation on God's green earth. 